Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 20 of Yoga Land. I gotta say, you guys, I cannot believe it's already the 20th episode. It doesn't even seem possible, but I'm really excited about today's episode. I got to talk to Sean Korn, and Sean is, I can honestly say, one of my favorite people in the yoga world. She... I, this interview was the closest I came to having a fangirl moment before I started talking to her. I think I had to have like four squares of chocolate and and an extra cup of coffee before I talked to her to meet her amazing energy and presence and, and all that stuff. And, you know, working at yoga journal for as long as I did, I saw a lot of teachers behind the scenes and, um, sometimes the charisma that they show in class is not you know, how they relate in face-to-face when you're one-on-one with them. And Sean is just as loving and charismatic and interested in whoever is right in front of her. She's the same person one-on-one as she is in class. Um, So she's an amazing person and she is doing amazing work in the world. As you probably already know, she's an activist, and that's mainly what I wanted to focus on with her today. I feel like we could all use a dose of activation um, in this time of our world and our country, and Sean is really the person to do it. But I was also interested in hearing a little bit about her background and how she got to where she is, and um, she's just really transparent and honest, and it's a great interview, so I hope you enjoy it. Cool. Well, I am so excited to talk to you today. I've been doing the podcast. I, I actually am up to like 20 episodes. That's great. Yeah. And it's just been really fun. And it's been getting like a good response. And I wanted to talk to you because I wanted to talk about activism. And I, But I'll get to that. I want to kind of start like earlier in your yoga. So I wanted to just ask, you know, one of the things that you've talked about is that you're kind of an unlikely person to have found yoga, just like growing up on the East Coast, not in a particularly spiritual or structured religious family. You're very independent. You're no bullshit. Do you remember what it was about yoga that initially hooked you or did it kind of take some time to build up in your system? I think a little bit of both. I mean, when I first got into yoga, it was circumstantial in that I was living in New York City in 1984 and worked at Life Cafe on Avenue B alongside David Life and Sharon Gannon, who went on to open up Jiva Mukti Yoga. And Eddie Stern was a delivery boy there. And he went on to open up, you know, of course, the the Ashtanga Yoga Shala. And so there was a lot of talk about yoga, not until around 1986, I would say, but yoga became a conversation in the cafe that I just started to pay attention to. There was a real division at this cafe in that a lot of people were doing drugs, including myself. And when I say drugs, I mean hardcore drugs. We would, it was so disgusting when I look back at it. On our shift, we would do lines of Coke on the, the lid of the toilet bowl. Like, oh my gosh. And we would cover it up with a bowl. And one by one, we would go in there and do lines. And the guy who was like serving alcohol and making the cappuccinos would literally make a cappuccino, lean over and vomit because of heroin, vomit into the trash can and then get back to work. And so this was life in the 80s in New York City on the Lower East Side, while simultaneously David and Sharon and Eddie and some other people were getting into yoga. And David just became less tolerant of drug use, of meat, things like that, that being served at the restaurant. 
So the conversations really started to change. And I started to just pay more attention to this yoga thing because David and Eddie and Sharon, they just came home from India. This is in 1986. Something had shifted in them. And I liked what I saw, a level of compassion, a level of ease, uh, an ability to communicate that I hadn't experienced before. And I got very curious about it. And I also knew that the drugs, that was going to be my downfall. People were dying. People were getting sick. I can see the direction this was going, but I didn't have a direction. And you were also like a really sensitive constitution. I mean, it must have been hard being sort of a sensitive person to do drugs like that. On your, you must have sort of had like a dissonance, like a feeling of dissonance. I think I look back at it now because I really like drugs and I especially like hallucinogenics. And I think that my nervous system was really deregulated um, and drugs helped me to regulate my nervous system and drinking. So it seemed um, it was all temporary. I didn't have any skills for self-regulation until I discovered yoga. And when I got into yoga and realized that I can ease my anxiety in other ways, than smoking pot or drinking. I stopped doing drugs. I stopped drinking very quickly. It wasn't a matter of I had to wean myself off. I was not an addict. I just knew I needed to live a sober life and deal with the, the, the anxiety. And one of my earliest experiences, as a, and I was a sensitive kid, I had developed obsessive compulsive disorder when I was around probably somewhere between nine and 11 is when I remember it starting. It wasn't called obsessive compulsive disorder then. I just had quirky behaviors. Right. And I would touch things in patterns of fours or eights. And I was constantly walking into walls, tripping over myself. And it looked from the outside as me being accidental or, or klutzy. But it was actually me trying to repeat the pattern on the other side of my body. So if someone touched me on one side, I'd have to figure out how to get them to touch me on the other side, but be discreet. So tripping into people was my way. And now I didn't realize that by doing those patterns, what I was trying to do was to, to uh, balance my body, to get control of my environment, and to regulate my nervous system. As a child, I didn't have drugs or alcohol. And, but when I discovered drugs and alcohol, it helped with the, the obsessive impulses. And I remember at 19, I was in a yoga class, and the teacher walked by me and accidentally stepped on my foot while I was in down dog. And I felt all this anxiety come up and I started to watch the obsessive thoughts. I needed this teacher to step on my left foot to get the balance back. Right. And I started to obsess on, well, maybe when I leave, when I say goodbye to him and I go to hug him, I can accidentally step on his other foot. You know, I'm just plotting how I can do this. And the teacher then said really words that were life-changing to me at that time, but I wouldn't have known it, but it did prove to be life-changing. He said, breathe and everything changes. So I took a really deep breath. Nothing changed. The anxiety got worse. Uh, my heart started to race. I started to feel flush. I took another deep breath. Same thing. Nothing changed. It got worse. And I don't know if it was the fourth deep breath, the 10th, but there was a breath where the sensation in my body, the anxiety it dissipated, hmm. it shifted, and I was able to get through the class and actually leave the school without tripping to get the teacher to step on my other foot. And after that, I started to practice. My habit was counting. There was 56 steps between the lobby and my fourth floor apartment, and I had to count those steps four times every single day and check the doorknob. Even though I knew the doorknob was locked, 
It didn't matter. It was a ritual. And I remember going down, counting my 56 steps, turning around to go back up and then stopping. So I was able to sit at the bottom of the stairs and breathe. And the same thing happened. The anxiety got worse before it got better. But eventually I was able to leave my apartment and not repeat the patterns. So yoga taught me how to self-regulate. It taught me how to get in my body. In time, it would start to expose some of the underlying trauma in my body. The reason why I developed some of these obsessive compulsive skills, it it had to get excavated. So at first it was a band-aid, but eventually it became, I had to go do deeper work. Mm -hmm. So that was really my experience with yoga early on. You know, it started very physical uh, for probably about, I would say my practice was very physical for, from 1987 until 93, maybe. Uh It was a physical practice. I could give a flying shit about the spirituality of it. I just felt better when a class was over. Um, It helped me uh, with my nervous system. And it kept me, it allowed for a better lifestyle. I stopped drinking, smoking, eating meat. Um, I stopped stealing because I used to steal like crazy. I was a shoplifter and I used to um, skim off the top at any of the restaurants that I worked at. We all did. Uh (laughs) But it made me question, like, why do I do that? I don't need to do that. And I started learning a little bit more about karma. Well, that's probably not a good idea. And it just changed some of my behaviors. But I didn't give it a lot of thought. It just, the drinking didn't feel good. The stealing didn't feel good. Acting out sexually didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And those things just stopped. And it wasn't until 1993 or 94 where I started to understand the mind-body connection really saw the impact that trauma had on my perception and on my physiological reaction to any conflict or crisis. And I spent a good decade from that point on, not just practicing on a physical level, but then exploring the energetic emotional level, working with different shadow therapists at the same time that would help give me insight into what my body was holding on to and how I could use the yoga practice as a way to release some of that suppressed emotion. Mm-hmm. When you kind of turned the corner and, and discovered like the, the deeper layers of yourself and of yoga, was it, do you think it was just timing and that like you were doing the practice, doing the practice. And like everyone says, you practice and everything just starts to come into place. Or was it a specific teacher? It was definitely timing. Um, because I remember being in a class, it was actually with Brian Kest. I was taking a class from him And Brian was just going, he was just doing his rap, you know, and all of a sudden we were, we were in pigeon pose and I got this emotional rush through the whole of my body and I felt like I was going to cry. And I had seen other people cry in a yoga class. I always thought it was so indulgent and I was embarrassed, Right. (laughs) but I couldn't help it. My body was starting to shake. I left the room, went into the bathroom at Yoga Works, and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And there was nothing wrong. It just was energy. And I remember my hands shaking and my chest shaking, knowing now I was discharging energy. Yeah. I couldn't have known that at the time. But what I did realize is that I went back into Brian's class. By this time, they were, you know, who knows what other pose they were doing. But I heard everything that Brian said in a completely different way. And I remember thinking, did he ever say this before? Knowing fully that he said it every single day, Mm -hmm. I wasn't available to the information. The tension in my body was still so restricted and that I wasn't emotionally, energetically available to that level of insider vulnerability. So the timing was, it was both the teacher, 
offering just a, a language that I could resonate with, but that my body finally released the tension enough that the information could land and it was finally accessible. It's so amazing how that works. It's so amazing how that happens for, and, and that that's sort of like the intention of asana practice. You know, it's just like you start with the gross layers. You start with the part of you that's like holding all of the other things in your muscles and everything. And, and then you start to release that and then you can actually feel things. I think that's probably why a lot of people will bolt because it's, that's, that got scary. It got yeah. real. But I also realized that it took five years for me to get there. Yep. So I, I felt secure. I felt stable. I felt like I had certain physiological tools to keep me in my body. It didn't happen too quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It happened for the fir- perfect for me. Whereas someone else might enter the practice really emotional and need the practice to actually just ground them. So it doesn't mean you start for everyone. The pathway is not physical, then emotional, then spiritual. Some might start spiritual and then need the physical to root and give them foundation in the in the physical world. Right. But my pathway was very physical before it moved to emotional. And now you will use the word God in your teaching. Um, So can you tell me, like, what is what does that mean to you personally, that word? And then what does it mean to you in the context of when you're teaching a class? Well, I really rejected the word God for many years because I was not raised with religion. I was raised in an agnostic home that would definitely border on atheist. But that none of this was really explained to me. I, had, I do believe I had a very deep, emotional, spiritual inner life, but it wasn't nurtured or valued in my family because my family just didn't believe in this stuff. So I picked up information about God through my school and through my friends and their parents. And so God was very patriarchal. It was very punishing, only seemed to show up when I messed up, which as a young person, it was all the time. And I rejected the notion of this patriarchal God. And so I became an atheist and was committed to that. Mm -hmm. And when I did begin to open to spirituality, I could not refer to spirit as God because of the power I had given that word. And in time, I realized that I was giving that word too much power and I needed to reclaim it and reframe that narrative. For me, God is the truth and love that exists within and exists within all. And it's an essence. It's a primordial energy, meaning it doesn't have any form or substance, but it's also not subject to change. It just is. The soul, on the other hand, is very much subject to change. That's something that's always evolving, growing, being challenged and tested, but spirit is very different. So the word spirit is interchangeable to me. It can be God, the goddess, higher power, uh, Yahweh, it doesn't matter. I also believe you can be an atheist and have an incredibly strong spiritual practice. If you commit your life to truth and love in all that you do, say, and create, there's nothing more holy than that. So my understanding of godliness is very inclusive. It's not religious. I'm a, I'm a very non-religious person. It's independent, it's evolutionary in that the more you grow mature on a soul level, the more your relationship to spirit also deepens. So when I decided to introduce that into class, I realized I had kept my spiritual life very much separate from my yoga teaching in the beginning, like the first three years, because I didn't want to offend anybody by inserting an interpretation about spirituality 
which is very subjective. Spirituality yeah. is subjective. But by going into a room and using my authority and power to insert a, a, a subjective opinion, I knew that that might turn people off. But at one point, I also recognized that I was devaluing an opportunity in these very transformational environments to plant really powerful seeds that can only aid and support people in, in transformation. Mm-hmm. And I had to come to terms with, I believed my purpose was to actually talk about God and spirit, was to create environments that were supportive and inclusive. It was to demystify mysticism. And if people didn't connect with it, then thank God there are so many different styles and teachers of yoga that they can just find their own way. But I wasn't being authentic as an artist. I was withholding. And it was also burning me out. It was like I was in a classroom. I would pick up all this information and this poetry would want to come through me, but I would stifle it. And after a class, I'd feel really exhausted, um, emotional. And the moment I finally said, fuck it, and just started to bring that additional color into my work, I, I don't really burn out. You know, I always feel inspired by what I do because I know that I'm in integrity and I'm also serving God in the way that I believe that I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I mean, I, I was raised similarly to you in terms of religion. And I think my mother actually tried <laughs> and it just didn't stick for me. Um, I think because of some of the things that you explained, it just sort of a, a blaming, shaming sort of feeling around God and religion. But the yoga room is a place where I feel like I've discovered my own spirituality. And I think that is a beautiful thing about talking about it and being open about it is that for those people who haven't found the connection that they they feel like something's missing, but they don't know what it is, it just allows for that opportunity. It just plants the seed of doesn't force anyone to believe anything, doesn't force anyone to feel anything, but it can bring that out um, for people. At least that that's been my experience which is really, really wonderful. You were, you were raised in a, in a... Catholic, Catholic. Oh, Catholic. I'm Italian, yeah. I know, everyone thinks I'm Jewish. I'm Italian. I always think that there's some, there's some Jew in you. I know, because I know. Because I was raised both Jewish and Catholic. Like that was, no, I wasn't raised it, but that was my environment, Jewish and Catholic. I thought that that was your story too. I didn't realize that you were fully Catholic. I'm going to do the Ancestry.com thing. So I'm going to find out if there is any Jewish in me because I, that, that's what everybody thinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By yeah. the way, I just did it and it's amazing. Oh, I really? was able to go back 300 years. That is so awesome. Everyone I've talked to have said there have been some really cool surprises. Yeah, it's really powerful. Like it's just weird to go back that far and get a sense of who these people were and the sacrifices that they made. to talk a little bit about your activism. Did you feel like uh, you've been an activist for a long time since the the 90s? Did you feel like you had to heal yourself or work on yourself first before you started helping others? I probably should have, but no. I've always had issues around injustice. I'm a really reactive person when it comes to seeing someone else or an animal in any way be hurt, slandered, or oppressed. I've been that way since I was a child. It's a physical thing for me. 
Um, my outrage runs huge. Like I have to do a lot of work on myself um, when I'm in certain circumstances so that I don't create more of a more conflict or more of a problem than is necessary because of how quickly I can get triggered in into my outrage. So when I first got involved with activism was actually back in the 80s and it would have been, I, I was very involved with the Women's Action Coalition, which was a radical feminist organization with ACT, uh, ACT UP, which was an HIV AIDS uh, awareness organization, as well as the National Organization of Women. I was very compelled, women issues and gay rights was big for me because in New York City at the time was when the AIDS pandemic really began. A lot of my friends were gay, a lot of my friends were dying, and I felt a real impulse to want to get involved with some of these actions. So I was a frontline activist, I was very aggressive, and I've often shared the story of the reason I loved being a frontline activist is because I would go to these rallies and I would scream and I would have a megaphone and it would be very confrontational. And I'd feel after a rally was done, I'd go out with my friends, we'd all, we'd, you know, we'd usually party or whatever. And we felt amazing until either the next morning or two mornings later, I'd start to feel this anxiety again, you know, like this, my body would feel this anxiety and I would be in a rush to get to the next rally. And it wasn't until I started to burn out as a lot of activists do. And this was all simultaneous to me getting into yoga and getting into therapy. And it took some years to realize the reason I felt so good after a rally is because the screaming and the yelling was a way in which I was processing my rage and discharging that suppressed energy. I wasn't processing it in a healthy way. I was just rinsing it. I was discharging without any resolution. And so temporarily, I would feel great until that feeling would start to arise again, mm -hmm. that tension. And I would need to act out in order to move it through. So while I got into yoga and started working on myself, I stopped doing any activism until the 90s. And I didn't get into it again because I, of any, I wasn't being in any way altruistic. I was actually quite cavalier about it when I look back at it. What happened was I started working with a client privately here in Los Angeles. This is before I was a national teacher. And as you know, you know, I'm working 12 classes a week, 12 privates a week just to pay my yeah. rent. I was hustling. But I got this client who wanted to work with me five days a week. He was really rich and he wanted a time slot that someone else already had. And he was willing to essentially pay me almost three times what my fee was in order to secure that time slot. That meant I was able, not only was I making enough money with just him, mm -hmm. it freed up my day. And I never had that. I never wasn't running around, you know, teaching a gazillion classes. So for the first time in my young career as a yoga teacher, I had a little bit of breathing room. And I felt really grateful for this newfound abundance. But I was superstitious. So I had a feeling that if I didn't put the abundance back out, I would stop the flow. So I had to do something with that free time to give it away for no other reason, except that I didn't want to stop the flow of abundance. Wow. So there was nothing, like I said, it was very cavalier. So I thought, all right, what should I do? I should probably volunteer. You know, the only skill I have is yoga. So, okay, I'll teach yoga. What population can I work with? And I thought, well, I've always been attracted to young people between like a certain age, like 11 and 17. I've always had a real affinity for. So I started doing some research and I came upon this shelter nearby where I lived in Van Nuys called Children of the Night. 
that housed and educated young people who had been sex trafficked, who had already been through the system. And I thought, this is perfect. These kids will love yoga. You know, it's a bunch, probably a bunch of girls, you know, like, this will be great. And it was horrible, horrible. I walked in, tried to teach yoga. There was 15 young people, uh, 13 girls, two boys, and they were severely sexually abused very early on in their, their healing and their mm. rehabilitation. They were angry, disruptive, aggressive, had no interest in anything that I was doing, deliberately tried to make me uncomfortable, were confrontational. It was the longest hour of my life. Wow. Second it was over, I bolted out. And as I was running in my car, I felt all this rage come up in my body and it was all projected that the system, how fucked up the system was, that these kids are going to end up back on the street, all this judgment, all this projection. And I burst out crying so hard because I had this instant realization that what actually happened was I just was introduced to 15 examples of the disowned parts of myself that I thought I had healed my shadow self. Mm. I thought I had healed, but I had actually bypassed. Yoga taught me how to, there was a word that I learned in meditation, detachment. So big feeling come up, detach. Big feeling arises, detach. So the moment I met all of my big feelings manifested in these young people, my impulse was to run and judge which was actually what I had been doing to the little part of myself Hmm. had been running away from it, bypassing it and judging it as bad. And I freaked. I knew in that moment, my yoga had just begun that a new doorway was open and that I had no choice, but to go back into that environment and try to figure out who these children were and what the exchange was. I knew that I wasn't there to serve them that I can offer them maybe some information and some skills, but this was mutual. So I went back and very differently, they were still disruptive and rude and all that, but I was able to see what's underneath their anger, what's underneath it. And my life changed when I realized that it wasn't their anger that I was terrified of. It was their grief. Hmm. The very thing that I was most afraid of in myself, because there had never been any room to fully express my own grief. And when I met theirs and learned and had such compassion and empathy is when I was able to be reintroduced to my own and heal. So from that point on, my service became very different. I was committed to my activism, knowing that it was an exchange of energy, that as much as I gave, I would only get back more. And so there's never been anything selfless or altruistic about what I do in terms of my activism. It is an essential part of my yoga an essential part of my healing. It's no different than me getting on the mat and doing trikonasana or a shoulder stand. Um, It's no different than the inner emotional work I do. It's the extension of, it's that now what? And that's been my commitment since. It's been to not be of service feels as if my, I'm only recognizing a fraction of the power of this practice and it minimizes its potential for me. Um, And that's been my commitment ever since. You know, it's so interesting from that story is it just reminds me of, and I I mean, I may be misperceiving this. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like when you first went in, it's almost like you looked at the young women and men as, as other, right? Like I have, I have to help them and I'm not a part of this. I'm, I'm here to come in and bestow, you know, my help on them. And, and really it works so much better when you feel 
connected. And, you know, it's so interesting having gone through a cancer diagnosis, like there's such a difference when people have said to me, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for you. How did you get through it? And when people say like, how are you feeling? Like, and they relate to it more. And it's just, it's such an instinct in humans, I think, to to disconnect um, because we're so scared Mm -hmm. of, of, like you said, we're so scared of feeling. But when you when you connect, it makes it so much easier for everyone. It makes it better for the person going through the feeling. It makes it easier for you to feel your own feelings. And like you said, deal with your own shadows. Yep. So yeah, that's a huge gift and, and amazing that, that you realized it. And it's still, a, you know, it's still an ongoing process. The more I learn about service and activism, I, may, I have made a thousand mistakes in this process, but you continue to learn and grow. You know, for the longest time, I had that, that idea. We are all one. We are all one. And what I've realized is, yes, we are all one, but we are not the same. And until I understand my own privilege and my power, then I can't actually fully be of service because the truth is I have benefited from the oppression of others. Mm. I don't like to think in terms of that, of course, but until I acknowledge it and identify it in my life, I can't change it or actually empathize with that perceived other. And so that's what service can be like every day. I just get my ass handed to me because the more I think I know, the more I know nothing and it's very humbling and yet it's an educational process and then I'm committed to that process. So that's how I look at it is yes, we are all the same. There is no perceived other, but I mean, excuse me, we are all one. There is no perceived other, but we are not the same that People, because of the color of their skin, their sexuality, their gender, their age, their physical abilities, will be treated differently in society than others and are afforded access to resources or not, depending, again, on those qualities. And that if I really want to be of service and be in activism, then I better know where I stand within that spectrum and how I will see the world through my particular privilege lens and how the world will see me. That's been, I think, where I've been in the last probably eight years in terms of my own growth, because I want my, my activism to be sincere. Mm-hmm. And I need to recognize, though, the way in which I can actually perpetuate um, separation because of what I'm not willing to look at within myself, including racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and, gen- and genderism, all that stuff. To say that I've transcended that would be a lie because those biases and prejudices live within our body, live within our cultural understanding. They're inherited through our ancestry and they're sneaky. They show up in really interesting ways. And as a yogi, I have to be willing to go towards that shadow and take ownership and not shame it. It just is what it is. Right. But I can't change it until I can see it. I, I mean, that's so huge. And I, especially right now in our culture with everything that's going on in, in the US. And uh, I think that's what just makes you such a, a valuable and vital voice in this community is that saying, I haven't transcended everything. I am human and I'm learning and I'm still doing this work anyway. I'm still here and I'm still committed. So do you kind of feel like in terms of that idea, right, that we are born into different opportunities, which is is a difficult thing to, um, to swallow. Mm-hmm. Like, h- how do you mentally and spiritually cope with that? Do you just kind of not try to make sense of it and just move forward and do the work? Well, first of all, I, I'm grateful. I got the brass ring. 
You know, like, yes, there's been oppression in my, in my ancestry as a Jew, um, as a woman, but in the big scheme of things, I can walk down the street holding hands with my partner, kiss him, and I never have to worry about getting beat up Mm -hmm. or humiliated. I can get a visa to any country I want at any given time because of the color of my skin, because of my education, because of my economic status, um, and because of the nation perhaps that I'm a part of. I can walk into any store and the security is never going to follow me around and suspect that I'm shoplifting, again, because of the color of my skin or that I'm perceived to have money. Mm -hmm. Most people in the world don't have that privilege. They live with that kind of discomfort, that kind of fear, that bias and that prejudice. So I recognize right away, thank you, God. This is amazing. I feel really lucky. I'm not going to apologize for this, but I'm also not going to recognize the way, I'm not going to pretend that I haven't benefited from the oppression of others. And I'm going to do everything in my power, everything that I can to try to take ownership model what that ownership looks like, and then uplift the community, share power, create opportunities for other people who are already doing great work, not be a, a saver, savior or a missionary. You know, that, I think that's the first thing. I, I don't want to look at my life and feel ashamed that I've had these privileges. I wouldn't want to be oppressed. I don't want to get beat up on the street. Like, you know, I don't want to feel that threat in my life, but I do recognize that most people do. And I have a friend, uh, Teo Drake, who is, works with Off The Mat, who's transgender, who is a, an activist, spiritualist, one of the most articulate and compassionate people that I know in helping to bridge the gap between yoga, spiritual work, transformational work, and social justice and activism. And I remember having a conversation with him where I was kind of bitching and moaning about something how hard, you know, my work was, how hard the activism, you know, just moaning. And he was being so compassionate and so sweet saying like, oh yeah, I hear you. You know, you know, maybe you need to take a weekend off. And then, you know, he took a couple of beats and he says, sadly, I can't. And meaning that every day he's confronted with oppression. Every day he's confronted with bias and with discrimination. There are never any days off for someone like him. And I was able to see through him, my privilege lets me take a couple of days off. Yeah, His doesn't. And he said to me, he lovingly laughed and he said that my biggest challenge comes from the moment I fell in love with Teo and meaning my friendship, you know, the moment we became friends and I began to understand the differences in our our societal um, perceptions, he said, you have skin in the game, hmm. meaning it's personal, meaning that it is impossible for me to tolerate knowing that my friend walks out into the street, maybe even today, and might be insulted or assaulted because of who he is. Because I love him, I have skin in the game and have to be in friendship, have to be in allyship, have to be an accomplice in order to change the dynamics within our society that creates so much trauma for people like Teo or the countless other human beings in the world that deal with bias and discrimination. And so I think about that a lot when I get burnt out or overwhelmed. It's like, A, my privilege allows me to take time off and how lucky for me, but the people that I love can't. 
And because I love them, I have skin in the game and therefore must stay engaged, must stay accountable, and must continue doing everything that I, that I can in my power to earn my privilege, mm-hmm. to earn it and not take it for granted. Otherwise, I am part of the problem. Do you, you know, do you understand what I mean? Like yeah. the fact that I can take that weekend off, I'm the problem. And that's not yoga to me. It's his pain is my pain. His suffering is my suffering. It just shows up differently. Again, we are one, but we're not the same. I'm not going to feel his physical pain, but I am going to feel in my heart what it means when we turn our back on the love, the God that is within each soul. Yeah. You know, after the shooting um, at the nightclub in Orlando, I, I don't know if you know this, but I woke up the next morning and I I emailed Janelle and I was like, I want to talk to Sean. I want to have Sean on the podcast. I need like, we, we all need like a hit of Sean right now. And um, that's kind of how this conversation started. And I just want to ask you, you know, what can we do as the yoga community to tip the scales away from, from all this violence? Like what can we do individually and what can we do collectively? Like, do you have thoughts about that? Yes, absolutely. Activation and participation are key, that people have to be willing to participate and get involved, that the systems that exist are corrupt, but the systems are made up of, of people. Change the people, you change the systems. So we have to be willing to, A, do our inner work, take accountability, commit to our own process of transformation, and be willing to activate change from the inside out and engage with your own local community in various ways to create change on a systemic level. Voting, we none of us have an excuse not to get out there and vote our values. And also recognizing that we don't have to recreate the wheel, that it's kind of pointless for to be like, well, let's say animal, uh, animal rights is a huge issue for me. But would it be sustainable for me to say, I'm going to open up my own Uh, animal rescue shelter, I'm going to do ABC, or do I just look around to see who's already doing it? Do I have any skills that can support that person? And if we were to really look around us, we'd see that all of this is already being done Mm. and that we don't need to be the savior. Really looking, if people are interested, let's say, for example, Black Lives Matter, that's such an important thing that's happening right now in our society. But who are the the black leaders in the yoga community that are already doing great work, how do we go towards them and say, what do you need? How can we help you? Rather than me as a white person say, here's what I'm going to do and aggregate all the energy to me rather than to the people who are actually impacted by it. And I believe that there are so many millions of people in the yoga community who share values of peace, love, authenticity, integrity, unity, that these are the intersected values that we share. If we purchased in accordance to those values, the world would change. Mm-hmm. If we voted in accordance to those values, the world would change. Like peace would be the inevitable byproduct of our activation if we committed to our values. And so I do believe that there is an enormous amount of work that the yoga community can do. I've always believed that we're more than a community, we're a constituency that. Our constituency could change policy if we were organized Mm -hmm. because politicians might not give a flying shit about our values, but they're going to care about our vote. Mm -hmm. And if they see that enough of us, 
let's say it's the environment, for example, or healthcare, that enough people in the yoga community were rallying around certain policies, our politicians would have to pay attention uh, because they want our vote. And so when I see apathy in the yoga community, it disappoints me because I really do see the power. And there are a lot of organizations doing great work already, yeah. whether it's training work or activation work. Uh, Citizens Well, for example, is a great organization if people are interested in learning more about uh, just about yoga and politics or bringing wellness into the forefront of politics. That's a great organization. Of course, Off the Mat Into the World has been doing work for years and we provide deep training for people who are interested in really learning how to go out into the world and activate, but from an integrated place so that we're not creating more problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's different levels of opportunities. There's taking the small step and asking organizations that you believe in, what can I do to help? Or there's taking, you know, your own path and doing, you do like trainings, uh, with off the mat, right? For people who want to start their own organizations or start their own activism. Uh, It's more about looking into purpose, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really about the off the mat trainings deal a lot with the mind body connection and trauma and how to identify trauma within your own body. Because the truth is when we go out to be of service, we're often, because it's also mystical, very often we are magnetized into environments where our own trauma is going to be activated and or we're going to be working with people who are traumatized Mm -hmm. and if we don't have skills we could actually create more trauma again unintentionally with the best of intentions or we'll burn out because we ourselves are going to be uh, traumatized so part of the work that we do is dealing with the inner emotional work first but then it's really looking at issues of social justice and putting it into a framework and talking about racism and genderism and homophobia and transphobia and sexism, looking at some of these global systemic issues that exist at oppression and power and privilege, that anyone who wants to get involved in activism really has to understand this language and be willing to be a part of those uncomfortable conversations and make it a part of the yoga. Hmm. And the last part of the trainings is really looking at individual purpose. And usually people's purpose change by the end of these trainings because they realize how complex the work is and how essential the individual work is. And that we want to encourage people, of course, to create their own nonprofits if that's what their purpose is. But it's really looking at the bigger picture, um, taking smaller integrated steps and constantly identifying where they are a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. I want to go back to when you were talking about your early days in activism and the rage and how it was like a way for the rage to dissipate and then it would come back. And, you know, you've been really honest about having difficult feelings around people who are perpetuating violence. And like um, you work with you've worked with child prostitutes and having, you know, feeling angry toward pimps and seeing them as others. So how do you work with with those totally human feelings in a way that feels real, but also skillful? Like, how do you process those? Because I feel like when we talk about our country right now, like one of the biggest issues is how divided we are. And yet it's really, really hard to empathize. (laughs) So what are your thoughts about that? I have six non-negotiables that I commit to every day. Otherwise, I will be very reactive. Uh, And because it's so organic for me to move into states of reactivity that feel justified, and actually feels normalized because it's a sense, it's a sensation that's very familiar. 
my six non-negotiables are yoga, meditation, prayer, a sustainable and nurturing diet, sleep, and therapy. There's not a week that goes by that I don't work with a spiritual mentor or a therapist to help me to process my very human and big feelings. Because I have so much language, language has always been my, my gift. Communication has been a real gift, but so is detachment and bypass. So I can tell you how I feel, but not actually feel anything. Mm-hmm. And because of the way I, I articulate myself, you'll never know the difference, but there's a disconnect. So I have to make sure that I go into environments and work with people that can help me to connect to the vulnerability so that it's not intellectual. So it's not in my thinking body, but it's in my feeling body. This is how it becomes sustainable for me and really authentic because when stuff happens, I get to acknowledge that I'm angry. I get to go into the shadow and not try to spiritualize it. That comes later. I get to make sure that I'm someone's holding a space for me so that I can go into judgment so that I can express all those hidden emotions that we all feel that we just don't want to identify. And then I can show up in the world. It's been rinsed. It's been processed. Now I can show up and trust that when conflict arises or I'm in the face of oppression, that I can't, I might not be able to change their behavior, but I can count on me not to uh, behave in ways that are out of integrity, Mm. that I know that I can stay in my body. I can breathe. I can stay grounded, that I can articulate and not make the situation worse. But it really does require commitment. I never let myself off the hook with it because I know how deep my shadow runs and how easy it is for me to lie without even realizing I'm lying. Hmm. And so having mentorship is very, very important and accountability. And activating, going out there and doing my best, knowing that you know, there's certain places I can handle pimps, I can handle discrimination, I can handle a lot of things on a human level where other people would get very triggered and very reactive. I can stay very grounded and calm, but not when it comes to animals. I get so triggered and really emotional. I lose my ability to to communicate effectively and I time travel. I go right back to being like a nine-year-old, an eight-year-old, and I am not effective as an activist in that community. Knowing that, I stay away from frontline activism in that world, but I support others who do. I support them financially. I support them via social media. I support it in my own, the fact that I'm a vegan. There are other ways in which I support that, knowing that emotionally, I'm not the most effective in my activism because it's too traumatizing for me. I haven't matured enough yet. Hopefully one day I, I will work through it. Not yet. It's still way too triggering. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, like what I'm hearing is just the importance of staying grounded and clear when you're working for a cause, because that's how you affect change. Yeah, it's the same thing when you're parenting, actually, (laughs) you know, because kids will do not consciously, but they will push your buttons and like trigger you to see if they can get a response. And if you give them like a rage filled or if they push and push and push and you go into a rage, like they've got you, you know, like there's no power in that. There's no, and there's no structure in that, you know, there's no guidance in that. Yeah. So that's just like a, there's just an interesting parallel that came to mind for me. Absolutely. So I was, I follow um, Glennon Doyle Melton. um, Yeah. yeah, Who is, uh, has the Monastery blog. And I actually saw through 
her that you are joining her on this together tour, which is coming up really soon in several cities. And I just want to know what it's all about. What are you guys doing? And how did you come together? It's pretty cool. We, it was organized through WME, which is the William Morris, William Morris events. And they host like Oprah and Ariana Huffington doing these large scale events. And uh, Jennifer Walsh, who heads the literary department there, this was her vision, her baby to create an opportunity for people to come together and share stories about transformation that can lead people to activation. And so she really went out there and chose myself and Glennon and Valerie and a lot of the different guest speakers for the fact that we are all deeply immersed in spirit, love, forgiveness, that we all have very diverse transformational tools and are active in our community to create change. And so the event is very interactive. It's not just sitting back and listening to us speak. We're actually even not, we're not necessarily each speaking that long. There's a lot of exercises and journal writing and opportunities for people to really look at their own stuff and using the stories as kind of a catalyst for to discover your own narrative um, about both personal transformation and purpose. And the idea is that we're better together, mm. that for any real change to happen, it's going to have to happen in the collective, but it's individual participation that inspires the collective, meaning that the collective can't be a group think. It requires different skills, different personalities to help the, the evolution of that collective. And that's what this is really representative of. And so we'll be speaking, we'll be bringing in other, other speakers because someone might relate to me and, or not relate to me and hear Glennon and be blown away. But basically we're saying the same thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then vice versa, you know, like with Valerie, it's just like, so our voices are very diverse. Um, our personalities are very different. And I think it's going to be a very powerful experience. I hope it models this idea of collaboration, of shared power, which I'm a big believer in, and that there's not just one star, that it's all very interchangeable. Mm -hmm. And that's really, that's any purpose-driven work. It's cyclical. One takes the lead, someone else stuffs the envelopes. The person who stuffed the envelopes then becomes the treasurer. Then they step into the lead position and that person, it's always shifting and moving. And I think that that's a feminine model of leadership, yeah. which is horizontal, not patriarchal, not hierarchical. And I think a feminine, um, a feminine example of leadership is what we need to see right now. And that's what we're trying to model. So we'll be in six different cities over the course of a month. And in each different city, we kind of pick up different local leaders uh, who are doing great work. Like I know Abby Wambach, who is a U.S. Olympic gold medal soccer player. She's pretty phenomenal. She'll be speaking in Portland. Kara, who is a singer, she'll be speaking in Atlanta where she lives. But she also has her own nonprofit work that she does. So there's really interesting people who are going to be joining us along the way, adding their own interpretation and voice around activism, social justice, and transformational work. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And it's all women, right? The, the speakers. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. You and Glennon do have this like overlapping, um, you, you're different and diverse and you have different communities, but you do overlap in that you're both so um, transparent and like 
people feel like they immediately know you because you are because you are so transparent and I think you both really reach people and she's also so articulate like you are she's so incredibly articulate she's funny though she's like I can be funny and I can be dry but she cracks me up oh yeah yeah oh yeah she's funny she is smart she's articulate she's passionate very transparent, but she's a real hoot. Yeah. So, like I enjoy that about her. Like I always think that I could use a little levity uh-huh. in, in just me and life. I could take life very seriously at times. And she's in on the joke. And I really enjoy her for that. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I just like, I always enjoy talking to you so much and I, I value your voice so much. And I, I know that my listeners are going to love hearing from you. Thank you. You know, I mean, we've known each other for, I don't even know how many years now. So. I know it's been a long time. 18, 19 years. Probably go back that far. <laughs> time flies. Time flies. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been a while. It's uh, we, and I just remember always having so much fun on set with you. Like always everyone on set, always laughing and having a good time when Sean Korn was there. Oh, that's nice to know. Yeah. Very good to know. Absolutely. Yeah. So you think you think you need some levity, but you always brought levity to our sets. Oh, good. Yeah. Probably because I was dying inside and it was like any anything that I could to kind of lighten the the load internally because those were hard. Those shoots were hard. I remember back in the day. Well, I was going to say, maybe you felt that we needed levity, you know, because we were, it was, it's an intense environment working for a magazine and like being, getting all, everything done that you need to get done. And so you probably like intuitively knew, like, if I just lighten things a little bit, it's going to be easier on everyone. Yes. It's all, it's all going to come out better. Yeah. But those are really good times. I really enjoyed it. That was, that was like the beginning of my career. So I have such fond memories about just it was still so unknown, you know, the direction that I was going to go. Yeah. So it was all. No, me too. I mean, that's part of the reason I started the podcast because I just feel like I was exposed to such interesting, inquisitive people at such a young part of my career. And I often didn't know what to do with it. And now I'm like, oh, I want to talk to all these people again. (laughs) I want to like actually ask them real questions. So anyway, I I feel the same. I feel totally fortunate for that time. Well, thank you so much. And I wish you the best. I hope that this, I hope you have a gazillion listeners (laughs) and I hope it impacts them more importantly, that what they hear from all the different teachers, because we're all saying the same thing. And yet at the same time, so differently. Yeah. And so if they don't resonate with me, they'll resonate with someone else. I always say finding a yoga teacher is like finding a a therapist. Like you just find the one that works for you and you don't, you know, you just, and everyone has someone that will work for them. You just have to, if it doesn't fit right away, you just try someone else. Yep. As my mother says, there's a lid for every pot. That's right. (laughs) There's a lid for every pot. So true. (laughs) All right, my friend, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Take care. Take care. I love you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right, you guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to see Sean on the Together Tour, you can go to togetherlive.com. She's going to be in Atlanta, Los Angeles, Brooklyn, Portland, where else? Chicago and Denver. And of course, you can study and train with Sean. I will put links to her trainings and to her website on the show notes page. And the show notes will be at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 20. Yay, episode 20. If you are enjoying the podcast, please go leave a review on iTunes or just click five stars. That would help me so much. Enjoy your practice, you guys, and I'll talk to you next week.